Sam Bankman-Fried is home for the holidays. Scott Peterson's mistress is relieved that there'll be no new trial. The Moscow police chief says internet sleuths are not helping. And the driver who drove Kaylee and uh, Madison describes what he saw in the car. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Welcome to Crime Talk. My name is Scott Reich. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't, like if you do, hit that little bell so you receive notifications when we go live or put up new content. And remember to please leave me a comment below. And remember, if you can't watch us, you can always listen to us anytime on any of your podcasting apps. Just search Crime Talk with Scott Reich. Okay, I know it's Christmas. Everyone's happy. Everybody loves everybody. Everybody trusts anybody. But soon, Soon, that'll all be ending and we'll be back to the old grind. And that's why you need to check people out. Don't take them at their word. So go to crimetalksearch.com and get yourself a background subscription service so that you can do a background search on anyone, as many people as you want while you have that subscription, which you can cancel at any time. But when you sign up, you go to the site, you type in the person's name, a search is literally done while you wait, and you're gonna get information on their criminal history, uh, their financial background, as far as are there bankruptcies, are there liens or judgments against somebody? Are they married? Are they divorced? Things that maybe people, if they're wanting to get to know you, they're not gonna tell you everything just yet. Check them out. Listen, if you're going on the dating apps and you don't have a background subscription service, you're committing dating malpractice, don't do it. Go to crimetalksearch.com, you'll be happy you did. Now, let's go ahead and open the record for today's docket. That's right, December 23rd, 2022. It's a Friday. It's Christmas Eve Eve. So Merry Christmas out there to everyone. Happy Hanukkah, happy holidays, happy everything, Festivus, happy winter solstice. We include everybody here at Crime Talk. I'm sure I missed somebody and I'll hear about it, but we tried. All right, first on the docket. Sam Bankman freed. Well, we all know that uh, he was uh, released yesterday and he was seen in the early morning hours of today, arriving at his parents' paltry $4 million Northern California home where he will remain under house arrest for the holidays. Now, Mr. Bankman freed was released from custody Thursday on a bond of $250 million. It's not like he had to post it though, ladies and gentlemen, nothing. It was a personal recognizance bond. He basically just put his name on a piece of paper and promised to appear because he's such a trustworthy guy, I guess. But the United States government agreed to it. I cannot believe they didn't seek detention for a man who's involved in one of the biggest swindles in the history of the world. Now, to be fair, his parents did supposedly put up their $4 million home if he fails to show up for court. But in theory, they'd be responsible for $250 million. So $4 million is hardly going to cut it. Well, several vehicles were spotted pulling up to the home of Joseph Bankman and Barbara Freed's house on the outskirts of the Stanford University property about 4.30 a.m., now, Sam Bankman-Fried's parents taught at the university up until recently, and a campus police officer was seen out the house uh, with the area cordoned off. 
Now, as you know, he was extradited from the Bahamas and is facing uh, federal charges, including wire fraud, conspiracy, money laundering, oh, and also a bunch of election uh, campaign violations, the least of his concern. But altogether, he's looking at spending at least, well, I shouldn't say at least, he's looking at spending a maximum of 115 years in prison. And since he is such a frail little individual, given his medication issues that he needs for his ADHD, as well as his dietary restrictions, when he goes to federal prison, and he will, he's not going to fare well. Now, he should go to prison because it's alleged that he stole $1.8 billion of investors' funds, and a lot of it was spent to fund his own little lifestyle. Now, like I said, he uh, is on a bond. It's supposed to be highly restrictive. It's house arrest. Um, he has an ankle monitor, uh, which means he has to stay at home, and he's on the other side of the country where the people that are investigating him um, are. So it's not like they're going to be checking in on him every day. He will have a pretrial supervision officer who will go to the house. But it was amazing. It was amazing the record time. Uh, in which he was released. He got that ankle monitor put on. He was able to make transportation arrangements when the rest of the country um, had 3,000 flights canceled yesterday. He miraculously made it home. Now, whether he flew private or commercial, we don't know just yet. My guess is they probably used a few of those few remaining bucks to take a private jet. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. So the condition of his bond, obviously, is that he stays at his parents' house. Now take a look at this house. You know, it's 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 worth about four million bucks because four million bucks just doesn't go as far as it used to out there in uh, California. If you wanted to spend four million bucks here in Colorado, you could get yourself a pretty decent little spread. But it's kind of a uh, far cry from the forty million dollar penthouse suite where old SBF was hunkered down there in the Bahamas. Yep. And it's uh, also about a lot better than the jail that he was there uh, in the Bahamas as well. Now, he is restricted. He can't leave the home except for trips related to exercise, mental health, and substance abuse treatment. Those are the conditions of his bond. Sure beats a prison cell. Let's just say. We talked about it yesterday. If you thought there were two justice systems one for the rich and the elite and the powerful, or those connected to the rich and elite and powerful and everywhere else and everyone us. This is Exhibit A. And can you imagine Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried has to have any purchase over $1,000 approved. Now, the only thing I think he is going to be spending money on is attorney's fees. And my bet is he's not even paying it. Because remember, he said, he was down to his last $100,000 several weeks ago. How the mighty have fallen. Because remember, this guy was adored by everybody. He was going to be billionaire. He is a billionaire, and he's giving away all his money to make the world a nicer place if we all just get a big hug. Like all things, ladies and gentlemen, that everybody thinks are too good to be true, it's probably because they are. It's just the way it is. Now, I don't want to sound too cynical, you know, being the holiday season and all, but I'm a realist, and I've been doing this for a long time, and I just don't get that impressed by celebrity or money or anything like that because, frankly, it's usually just trying to cover up whatever they want to hide, bottom line. Now, interestingly enough, 
SBF's parents were listed as signatories on a $16.4 million house in a gated community with beach access, which they listed as, uh, their, in their property records as a vacation home. But the dad of SBF, uh, who's the tax law professor, has stated that he's been attempting to return the deeds to the company uh, since before the bankruptcy proceedings actually took place. And old SBF, you know, since his co-defendant's ex-girlfriend have rolled against him, his defense of, I had no knowledge of what was taking place, I had no knowledge of that particular piece of property, probably is not going to fly very well either. Now, the ex-girlfriend of SBF who pled guilty the other day, and that was announced while SBF was flying back on the Gulfstream 500, courtesy of the United States government. Now, granted, it was operated by the United States Marshals, but it's about as close as private he's going to get for a while. Um, His girlfriend, uh, Miss Ellison, she was uh, pled guilty to the wire fraud, commodities fraud, securities fraud, and money laundering. And in exchange to plead guilty, she is supposedly going to truthfully and completely disclose all information concerning all matters in regards to the investigation and prosecution of SBF. Her bond was set once again at a personal recognizance bond level, a signature bond of $250,000, not $250 million. You might as well made it a billion. It's not like anybody's going to pay it for him. Anyway, provided she sticks to her promise to cooperate with the feds, she's obviously going to hopefully receive a reduced sentence based upon that cooperation. She should be sentenced for what she's done. Yes, the cooperation is good and it's nice. However, just like we've talked about before, just because you steal the car and you take somebody's car without permission and you bring it back and you wash it and you did your best to make it look like it was brand new, you still stole the car without permission. So you got to get some penalty. You have to get some punishment. Now, Miss Ellison, um, she cannot leave the United States. She also had to turn in her passport. And uh, she's been running around New York, probably dealing with the United States Attorney's Office. Uh, But she can also go back to uh, Massachusetts, where her parents, both of them, uh, teach at MIT. So she's not dumb. So you would make one think that she couldn't have been duped into committing this fraud, which she pled guilty to. So we don't have to give her that presumption of innocence. Um, So once again, I see that more as an aggravating factor, not a mitigating factor. Well, because this is our last show before Christmas and Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried, we wish you the best for the holidays. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. That's all we've got to say. Next on the docket, Scott Peterson's ex-mistress is glad that the judge didn't grant a new trial. So the California judge obviously rejected the request of Scott Peterson for a new trial. That allegation was based that a juror in the Peterson murder trial was biased against him. And um, the court said, yeah, not so much, but we're going to allow the conviction to stand. So Judge Ann Christine Masulo previously considered the motion to grant Peterson a new trial because, as I stated, uh, his attorneys alleged that a juror lied on her juror questionnaire so that she could be chosen on the jury and therefore enter a guilty conviction against Mr. Peterson. Now, the court 
did find that juror number seven's responses were not motivated by pre-existing or improper bias against the petitioner, but instead were the result of a combination of good faith misunderstandings of the questions and in sloppiness in answering the question, although they were incorrect. But could you imagine, you know, here we are 18 years later and going to have to come back and try the case. What a pain that would be, right? The prosecution already said they weren't going to go and redo the death penalty because basically it was going to be too difficult to redo. So the judge said, yeah, try again. You'll get some relief if the appellate courts give you some relief. Now, the juror in question, a woman by the name of Rochelle Nice, answered no to questions about whether she had ever been the victim of a crime or basically a protection order type of situation. Oop, guess what she forgot to do? She failed to disclose that she had obtained a restraining order against her former boyfriend back in 2004 harassment. I mean, I can see. Have you ever been the victim of a crime? Ever filed any restraining orders because you think a crime's been committed against you? Nope. Can't see, cannot think of a single thing. I can totally see how that just completely skipped by her mind and has no idea uh, what shoot they were talking about. No idea or why it should be disclosed in any way. Just find that hard to believe. Anyway, well, the ex-girlfriend, the mistress of Mr. Peterson, said she's relieved. Now, you have to remember, she was the one that became the key witness when um, Lacey and her unborn son, Connor, uh, disappeared and ultimately found killed and a, convict, and a jury convicted Scott Peterson of killing them. Uh, but Miss Fry testified that when she met Mr. Peterson and became the primary suspect, he got caught in a bunch of lies to his mistress because it was discovered during this relationship that was undisclosed with Fry, uh, who was cooperating with the investigation at that point, that um, she had some of the most damning evidence against Mr. Peterson, specifically that Peterson told Fry that his wife was deceased. Ooh, it's almost like he knew she was going to disappear. Once again, it's funny how that stuff works out, isn't it? Anyway, that's right. Lacey disappeared just right before Christmas, and um, he would have to spend the holiday without her. And uh, Miss Fry also stated that Mr. Peterson never wanted children and that uh, her daughter from a previous relationship would be enough for him. And then on December 23rd, 2002, the day Lacey Peterson disappeared, Peterson said he went fishing at the Berkeley Marina, and then in April of 2003, investigators found Lacey's body near the San Francisco Bay, about eight miles north of the Berkeley Marina. Then on April 18th of 2003, police officers arrested Peterson near a golf course in La Jolla. Reports indicate that uh, he was carrying $15,000 in cash, hundreds of sleeping pills, 10 Viagra pills, and multiple cell phones and an identification card belonging to his brother. He was also found in possession of a weapon, including a firearm and a dagger. Possibly on his way to see his mistress, perhaps. Hmm. Well, we'll just have to see what the appellate courts will do with that one. I don't know. I don't like jurors that just forget things. But let's face it, the other jurors who 
disclosed everything, did find him guilty, but it has to be unanimous 12 jurors. I get it. Who knows? Maybe that one would have been the one. So little word of advice for you, ladies and gentlemen. We've seen this now in how many cases, high-profile cases? Obviously, Scott Peterson goes way back. We've seen it recently in the Ghislaine Maxwell case. And we just saw some juror issues um, on the Lafitte uh, federal trial in South Carolina. Bottom line is, ladies and gentlemen, just tell the truth. That's what the process is called in jury selection. It's called voir dire. It's a French word that means to speak the truth. Next on the docket, the Idaho police chief there in Moscow says the internet sleuths aren't helping. And the guy that drove two of the girls home, well, he's explaining what he observed. So the police chief from the Moscow Idaho Police Department believes that the quadruple homicide will be solved. And he's saying that they're not sharing information because the investigators are trying to refrain from compromising the case. And he believes that whomever murdered Ethan Chapin, Zaina Kernodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves, that they will be brought to justice. Now, the chief apparently starts his day every day with a briefing at 7 a.m. and he goes through the information that's coming about. He says every resource is being utilized in its full stability and his teams are working over the holiday and investigators are driven by the need to bring closure to the families who lost loved ones. Now, he said that we've heard the rumors, this case has gone cold, this case has not gotten cold. He stated that we've been hearing people say that we don't have the right people. And he says, the chief says, I'm telling you, we have the right people in place. We have the right resources. We have the right individuals. And we have lots of experience that is overseeing this case to make sure that things get done. And he says it puts a big pit in his stomach when he received the call. But he's also saying that all these internet sleuths aren't helping because when they find out this information, then the information gets released to the police. And he says that basically the internet sleuths don't have the big picture and you're actually creating more work and a distraction from the police investigating this particular case. He says these amateur sleuths from the internet come out to offer their two cents, even if it's not always a substantive lead. So people look to the rumors and speculation, and then they generate tips or things that they want to report that may not even occurred or not, they're not even factual. Police have to ask the public to stop contacting people that may be connected with the victims. And uh, Facebook pages have been doxing ex-boyfriends. Social media pages have started plastering the faces of the victim's friends all over multiple platforms. And a Twitter user even began calling the local bar that Mogan and Gonsalves were uh, last seen at that night. It's called the Corner Club. And asking the owner if he could provide the last names of the people she believed the bar is covering for. There's a lot of people who want to be involved from the internet. And he says, the chief says that they are the official source of the information and they're going to put out accurate information. And he wants to know that, wants everybody to know that he is committed to solving this case. Doesn't know how long it's going to take, but he is going to do it so that the families get justice. So there you have it. We've talked about this before. I get it. The public can be a great help, but you have to make sure that it's based in fact. There are lots of channels out there that will speculate on anything and everything, and you have to look at what 
you can actually prove. I've said this before. As an attorney, maybe I get too wrapped up in it, but it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't really matter what you think. It only matters what you can prove with legal and competent evidence in a court of law. Your hunch, your gut feeling doesn't cut it. Now, yesterday we brought you the video of the uh, party that was going on at the victim's house there in Idaho. And neighbors are confirming that that house uh, was quite a uh, active party house. As we brought you the video yesterday, there was a party going on there and none of the residents were actually home. That's how bad it was. So a lot of people in and out of that. And the neighbors are confirming that, yeah, there was a lot of students that are familiar with that house uh, from inside the home and the parties. Uh, if the cops showed up, people would just hop the fence and just walk away if the cops showed up. So we talked about the significance of that is even if Let's say, for example, they get some DNA there. It could be somebody that was just there at a party and it didn't get washed away. Um, doesn't mean that they were necessarily involved in anything. So making the uh, police's job a lot more difficult to say the least. Now, the driver that was really probably the last one, the driver who took two of the murdered University of Idaho students home the night they were killed has started to speak and let people know that uh, he's haunted by the knowledge that it was his job basically to get them home safe. Now, surveillance footage of Kaylee and Madison showed that the girls picked up pasta at Grub Truck around 1.40 a.m. after ending their evening out at a nearby corner club bar in downtown Moscow. Uh, the driver said that he picked them up about 1.40, 1.45 a.m. and they had their food. And he states that they were super excited about their mac and cheese as the girls are after they go to the club. They sat in the back of the car. They chatted. They were normal, just like any other night. They weren't upset. They weren't talking about anything in particular or talking about anyone in particular. The driver said he was familiar with their surveillance footage in which one of the girls appeared to be uh, talking about somebody called Adam earlier that evening. They didn't talk about him or any boy during that ride, he stated. Now, the Moscow police have contacted Adam, who they have described as cooperating with their investigation. And according to the driver, sometimes the girls would talk about boys, but that night they were just excited about their food. There was no apprehension he could perceive, no weird feelings there, no anyone being upset. There was no nervousness about them. They weren't afraid of anybody. There was nobody following them or following us, he describes that night. And there was absolutely nothing about that ride that was different or abnormal. They were just typical sorority girls talking away. And half the time, they don't pay a whole lot of attention to the drivers. We're just kind of doing their thing, the driver said. Now, the driver also noted that he did pull right up to the door of the girl's house, stopping instead of right there on the street. He said, it's just, I just pulled up in front of their driveway. Uh, he said he didn't pull right into the parking lot. Uh, he usually tries not to get that close because he doesn't want to get robbed himself. He said that he tried to stay in a position where I can either go either direction if he has to get out of there if something were to happen. But he says that on that night, he saw and felt no threat whatsoever. In fact, he said he didn't watch them go all the way into the home. There were the two of them in a relatively safe place. It's not something that he would usually sit and watch because he didn't get any 
bad feelings about anything. And he said that in the past, if he thought that somebody needed help, um, he said he's taking kids to get their stomach pumped if they'd had too much to drink. So he's not above helping out or being observant of his particular situation. But he says, hey, this is a college town. These kids and they're just trying to live their lives and the drivers are just trying to drive them around and they don't need to be preyed on. Now, the fact that Kaylee, Matt, the fact that Kaylee, Madison and their friends were so brutally murdered within a couple of hours of him making the drop off um, has weighed heavily on him. And he says that uh, he's been driving for years. And to think that he was the last person to see them alive weighs heavy on them. He said that when he saw the news on that Monday that it occurred, that it was the neighborhood, but that was before they had released any names. So as soon as I knew for sure it was the girls, he said he went to the police. And he was swiftly eliminated from inquiries, having uh, provided officers with a wealth of digital data, apparently, along with a time-stamped receipt from Taco Bell, um, to which he went after uh, dropping the girls uh, back home. Now, in the weeks since the murder, he says that he's watched and he's a little dismayed that the police have uh, shared little information uh, with the families and the victims have obviously grown increasingly impatient. Driver said he had to take a week off just to kind of uh, process everything that has taken place. And um, he says that the feeling in the community is that the police aren't trying. The police chief says they are, so I don't know who you're going to believe. Well, anyway, the driver says most of us have very little faith in the Moscow uh, Police Department. We can't tell if we are watching qualified investigators who have handled uh, this situation or if they're at a complete loss and basically just grasping at straws. Now, as we noted before, the Moscow Police Department has uh, pushed back on that and saying that there's plenty of experience, even though the lead investigator has two years of experience as a police officer. And here we are. The murders occurred on November 13th. No weapon, no suspects, nobody named. They're still looking for this white 2011 to 2013 Hyundai. They got nothing. Starting to think it's going to go cold. Next on the docket, our dumb criminal of the day. Please meet Joshua Thomas Watson. He's been charged with theft. But how did he get to be charged with theft, you may ask, Scott? Well, on December 19th, he was uh, captured on some ring surveillance video. And according to the video, about 5.20 a.m., Thomas entered the grounds of an industrial supply company, and he uh, went to work to try and steal property from them. Mr. Watson allegedly cut the locks off of trailers on the property, then entered the trailers and removed items which he loaded into his vehicle. He also cut some copper wires, adding them to his collection of some stolen loot. Then it seems his luck ran out. Video shows the thief trying to cut through the thick power cables of a circuit box, trying to get a little more copper. But then he uh, stopped abruptly. Investigators said that he failed to cut off the power first, so the line was hot and it shocked the hell out of him. But not the thief, apparently. Not the thief out of him. Possibly rattled, Mr. Watson fled the scene, leaving at the scene his Texas driver's license behind. You gotta love it. Investigators used that driver's license left behind to identify him as the person seen on the video. The multiple electric cables, locks, extension cords, ring cameras, and copper wires that Watson took, in addition to the damage that he caused to the office, has totaled about $21,000. And not surprisingly, Mr. Watson has a lengthy criminal history. And shockingly, it includes theft. Because I guess past performance is indicative of future results. He's also got some arrest for uh, possession of uh, stolen motor vehicles and um, basically possession of stolen goods. 
shocking. Who would have thought that the guy stealing the copper would have a criminal history? It just how did it blows your mind, doesn't it? Well, anyway, his bond is set at $20,000 and um, hasn't uh, posted it yet. So he'll be spending his holiday season, his Merry Christmas in custody. But at least he knows he doesn't have to go steal somebody else's stuff to have a better holiday. All right, that's all we have for you today. It's Friday. Hope you have a wonderful Christmas or any holiday that you celebrate. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.